Hello, Cold War Vault dwellers, and welcome to a quick overview of a couple of things going on in the world today. Or yesterday, anyway, as that's when I wrote this. It's today, yesterday, and how it connects to Cold War era history, because that's what we do down here in the Cold War Vault. First on my mind is something particularly strange. I mean, really strange. I've been working on a big episode on lost submarines and where to find them, about 1968 and the very bad year for losing submarines, nuclear and otherwise. As I was writing Monday morning about the French submarine Minerve, lost 50 years ago in the Mediterranean and never found, what should appear? An announcement from the French government, as I'm writing the paragraphs, mind you, that a team had found the Minerve. You'd think I had some kind of inside knowledge of the mission, but I most certainly did not. It was, and I think it will be, one of the most unusual coincidences in all of my researching life. I'm just happy I will have a substantial head start on the 20 other podcasts and history YouTubers who will hasten to put out stories on Minerve and the other disasters of 1968. This is what we do know as of now. The ship Seabed Constructor, owned by Ocean Infinity, and armed with what the company calls the world's most advanced fleet of autonomous vehicles, entered into some kind of partnership for exploration with the French government, which is still unannounced. And with some adjustments to the calculations done during the search 50 years ago, found the submarine almost exactly where it should be. From a company with a corporate slogan of seabed intelligence, I wouldn't expect anything less. I'm sure there will be a lot more when Ocean Infinity posts an official press release, so keep an eye out for the new episode on the submarine sinkings of the 1960s, how they fit into the bigger picture of Cold War intrigue, and especially how they pushed marine technology forward for the United States and the Soviet Union. The wreck of the Titanic will be in there too for fans of disaster and discovery. I don't think that I can call this episode a Fearmonger Friday, but I suppose I could call it Grumblings in the Gulf. I've looked at several headlines today from the internet's cut-and-paste culture, and nearly all say that 17 CIA spies have been arrested and sentenced to death. I suppose for most, this conjures images of some serious cloak-and-dagger professionals, American citizens even, being rounded up in the night for some kind of purge in a tit-for-tat action by the Revolutionary Guard of Iran. But looking at the details of the actual statement, it's hardly necessary that this news came out today, or Monday, as the case may be. The statement from Tehran says the spies who are alleged to work for the CIA were arrested over a 12-month period up until March of 2019, 
So, not over the weekend is my point. A top Iranian intelligence official told reporters, the 17 were all Iranians working in what the Iranians termed sensitive centers in military and nuclear facilities, and the private sector also. They all acted independently of each other. So these people don't sound like spies, technically. They are what's called assets. And there are a few ways people can become an asset. Very few are very savory. They can be ideologically motivated, and that seems honorable unless you're on the other side of the ideology. They can be paid, doing it just for financial gain. The most damaging spy in U.S. history, Robert Hansen, did it, at least in part, for the Benjamins. They might be blackmailed. And my personal favorite tragic story, and by far the most common type of asset in the Cold War, useful idiots. Everything from a drunk at a bar to a co-worker at a water cooler to your cubicle mate in a Tehran data center could become a useful idiot, and therefore an asset, but not a spy. The Iranian official also didn't say how many had been sentenced to death. So, taken collectively, I understand the headline, but compiling a year of anti-espionage, anti-American activity into a Monday morning headline feels like fear-mongering to me. But by whom? And to what end? Foreign or domestic? I think we have yet to find out. I suppose what's really worth talking about this week is the unfolding Tanker War Part 2. I'm sure that most of you who listen to The Vault don't exactly need to be reminded of all of the many provocations and retaliations that have been in the headlines the last couple of months between the Iranians, the British, and of course the Americans. So are we looking at the opening days of another tanker war? You might ask yourself, what was the tanker war? Well, let me tell you where we've been, and you might just see where we're going, if things go poorly. The Iran-Iraq War of 1980-1988 was a grinding conflict between those two regional neighbors that left an estimated but impossible to know 500,000 killed and 500,000 injured and potentially 627 billion U.S. dollars in economic losses when the whole affair was tallied up and done. With neither side winning anything, the war was ended with the status quo antebellum, as they say. So, as you can see, we aren't there yet, but it does happen from time to time. The tanker war was a piece of the larger war, in which maritime attacks in the Persian Gulf ballooned up into a real crisis. It started when the Iraqi Air Force began a strategic bombing campaign against the oil terminal and tankers at Kharg Island in 1984. That's Kharg Island. It was an essential piece of Iran's upstream exporting capability. This was an extreme blow 
and it seemed to be designed to provoke the Iranians into doing something so aggressive that it might bring the Americans or the Soviets into the conflict. And very unusually for Cold War matters, both the Americans and the Soviets would have come in on the same side, the side of the Iraqis. What military response could be so extreme as to bring in the superpowers? Well, the closing of the Strait of Hormuz to all traffic and starving the world of its supply of oil, for one. To limit the possibility of bringing in support from the big guns, the Iranians started limiting their attacks to only Iraqi shipping in the Gulf. But the Iraqis didn't let up on oil shipping to provide revenue for the war effort, and so the Iranians attacked a Kuwaiti oil tanker and a Saudi oil tanker in May of 1984. Why the Kuwaitis and Saudis? Because they were carrying Iraqi oil. This went on and on. Eventually, the Iranian Navy declared a naval blockade of Iraqi oil, and the Iranians almost did the unthinkable. They closed the Strait of Hormuz. At least in so much as they declared the right to inspect any ships through the 21-mile waterway for evidence of Iraqi oil. In the same way that they almost closed the strait, it almost brought the United States into the fray when the U.S. began several operations to protect the freedom of navigation in the strait and, less generously, to attack Iranian ships and oil infrastructure. Operation Earnest Will protected Kuwaiti tankers from Iranian attacks, Operation Prime Chance attempted to limit Iranian ability to attack shipping, Operation Nimble Archer attacked oil platforms and retaliated for an Iranian attack on a tanker. Any one of these operations by the U.S. during the tanker war could have its own episode. But let's just say this, by the end of hostilities, estimates of damage and loss came to 546 commercial vessels damaged and 430 civilian sailors killed. A BBC source claims that of these, 240 of the vessels were oil tankers and 55 of the massive tankers sank. Let's forward to today. After Donald Trump was elected, he followed through with his rhetoric opposing the Iranian nuclear deal and reimposed economic sanctions. These have since been tightened, and Iran had already been feeling economically squeezed. Well, in response to increased U.S. sanctions, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani announced that if one day the U.S. tries to stop Iran's oil exports, then no oil can be exported from the Persian Gulf presumably meaning a blockade of the waterway that separates Iran from Oman by just 21 miles, the Strait of Hormuz. The Strait handles a fifth of the world's oil, 19 million barrels a day. If I may engage in a little fear-mongering, it would be a catastrophe. Since all of this started, there has been a back-and-forth escalation 
of what still amount to be petty, though provocative, actions. The seizure of tankers, the shoot-down of drones, and a war of words. Just a lot of little sparks. Is it all enough to start a war? Well, time and time again, the pettiest single actions have countries stumbling into war. Especially if one side, the other, or both want that war anyway. But if there is a powder keg, like a vicious disdain, hateful rhetoric, or the unceasing propaganda that has been mutual between the United States and Iran since the 1979 revolution, then those little sparks can blow it all up and burn it all down. Thanks for visiting The Vault for this shorter episode of Current Events and Some Related History. Please come back for that bigger episode on the submarine disasters of 1968, coming very soon. Like The Vault and follow on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault. Check out coldwarvault.com for show notes and links, and anything that relates to the show. You can listen to The Vault anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, Liking and subscribing is the best way to support the show. Until next time, keep your powder dry. <laughs>